Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Come on, you clap your hands to the Lord one more time. And thank Him for His mercy. You may be seated this morning. Thank you for standing. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord. Certainly a pleasure to be here and see everyone here. Thankful that God has given us the opportunity. Brother Larry already mentioned, but we're going to be talking from the subject this morning, a multitude of believers. We've spent the last three weeks talking about every nation, every tongue. We've talked about an all-inclusive church. We've discussed overcoming prejudice. And we talked last week about actions, our actions speaking louder than words. And so this morning we're going to conclude our study by talking about a multitude of believers. If you'll join me this morning in the book of Revelation, we'll be reading chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. The Bible says, after this... I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. A great multitude from every kindred, every nation, every people, and every tongue, cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. That's certainly a place that I can say with confidence today that none of us have been to. It's a place that none of us have ever truly visited. And so it's only fitting that our imagination would attempt to reconcile what it would be like. I'm talking about heaven this morning. We've not been there, but we can imagine what it might be. We can put our mind to the test and we can let our vision roam. And so I asked the question this morning, just rhetorically, what, what do you imagine when you think about heaven? What usually comes to mind? Is it walls of jasper or streets of gold. When you think about heaven, where does your mind tend to settle when you begin to ponder the wonder of what heaven will be like? Is it gates of pearl or is it foundations of precious stones? Maybe it's the chance of of the opportunity to reunite with loved ones or or the prospect of of having no more turmoil in your life, no more pain, no more tears, no more struggles, no more dying. 
if that's where your mind goes when you think about heaven, all of those are absolutely valid thoughts and imaginations of what heaven would be like. After all, that's what the word says, that there would be no more dying. There would be no more struggles. There would be no more tears because the Bible says that all tears would be wiped away from every eye. And so all of those are valid. They're certainly what will make heaven, heaven. However, I believe what will ultimately make heaven, heaven, is that we would be able to spend eternity with Jesus Christ himself, the one who died for our sins, the one who washed away our sins with his own blood. That is absolutely what will make heaven, heaven. But what will that look like? I believe that one of the greatest glimpses that we have of heaven is found in Scripture, and it is in the Scripture that we just read in Revelation chapter 7. Imagine the beauty of what John beheld when he saw the vision of heaven. A multitude that no man could place a number on. A literal sea of people as far as the eye could see. People from every nation and every kindred of the world. It was a diversity of people with different ethnicities from differing cultures and with diverse language, but all expressing love and worship and adoration to the one who shed his blood on Calvary. Imagine the joy, imagine the smiles on faces, the fellowship and the unity as one voice is lifted as a holy choir unto the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But we can only imagine what that will be like. But I pose the question today, is imagining all we can do. I don't think so. I don't think that imagining is all that we can do because the, the, the Bible itself says that we have a promise. First, we have a glimpse of heaven through God's spirit. Paul himself attested to the promise in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He called it a spirit of promise, an earnest, an earnest of our inheritance. And so when we are filled with his spirit, we receive a down payment of what will ultimately become who we are in him. What we will receive when we receive the spirit is a down payment to what has already been promised to us in the world to come. And I believe without a shadow of a doubt that we can experience heaven right now and in this hour both through his spirit and what I believe is one of the greatest visions given us in scripture. John saw saints. John visioned saints. John witnessed the redeemed, those that came out of great tribulation, washed in the blood of the lamb. And John saw them from every nation, from every race of people, from every language that is represented in the earth. Can I tell you this morning that what John saw in his vision was the vision of the church. What John saw was the church, and John saw what will be the church. And as a whole, John saw the vision of heaven, of what it thinks the church should look like in the earth. It all became possible through a promise. It came from a promise, and it will all be made possible 
through a promise. God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah. He appeared unto Abraham and said in Genesis 15 and 5, and he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward the heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. God appeared to Abraham again in Genesis 17 and 4. As for me, he said, Behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. He promised Sarah as well in Genesis 17 and 15. He said, For Sarah thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall, thou, shall her be, name be, and I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. However, that promise that God gave them seemed so unattainable to Abraham and Sarah. And so they devised a plan to carry out God's charter by their own means. In time, they would offer to God, they would offer him a solution to his predicament by providing a surrogate to him. They would allow another person to bring about the promise that God had given to them and God could just bless that child. But can I tell you this morning, God will never bless what flesh can create, not in the way that we think. God will never covenant with flesh because God's pure blessing is in covenant and God will only covenant in the spirit. I don't have to tell you, but the Lord didn't need Abraham and he didn't need Sarah to provide him or to help him realize his vision for them. He made a covenant with Abraham for a future promised child that would in turn become a nation. Yet, in all of this, God still displays his mercy and his patience. The Lord made it clear, I will bless Ishmael, but Isaac will be the child of promise. And so he was. He would be blessed to have two sons, one of which Jacob would become Israel, and he too would bring about that promise given to Abraham so long ago. He told him, God told him in Genesis 28 and 14, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in thee, in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. However, as we read in Scripture, we make it to the book of Isaiah generations later, and now we see that Abraham and Sarah's descendants were in great peril. Now they are a backslidden nation, and the promise is seemingly so out of reach. The promise itself that God gave to Abraham and Sarah to make Israel a nation now finds itself in peril. Isaiah lived through tumultuous times. He lived through the captivity of Israel by the reign of the Assyrians. And he prophesied along uh, Jonas, Amos, and Hosea. Isaiah's prophecies took place in the middle of dark days, yet his, pro his prophetic activity produced a writing that encapsulated an overall theme that went counter culture and contrary to the surrounding atmosphere around them. Though times were bleak 
And though the horizon seems so out of reach and hard to make out and hard to see, Isaiah prophesied hope. Yes, it was words that cut right straight to the quick. It was words that went just like the word of God says. It, it went to the bones and to the marrow, and it, it set asunder those things of spirit and of flesh, and it, and it dived right down into the middle of the situation. Yet, the overall theme that Isaiah entrusted to the people and God entrusted to him was that even though times were bleak, even though times looked like there was seemingly no way out, God still said, you must have hope and you must trust in me. It was about unwavering trust even in the midst of trouble. Although the deck was stacked against them, although the odds were overwhelmingly against their favor, Isaiah admonished Israel to trust in God's control. He, I, he, he recounted their rebellion of the people and he told them of an impending judgment as a result of a sinful uprising. And while in captivity, these people, they began to lose faith in God. Perhaps the questions were asked rhetorically. I don't know. Maybe they were asked out loud. But I could just imagine that there were people standing in awe and saying, if God is all powerful, how was it that these foreign powers are in control? If God is the creator, creator of the universe? How is it that we find ourselves in unknown times? How is it that all of these foreign powers are, 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 are in control of us? But Isaiah, Isaiah reminded the people that their exile was the result of punishment and not neglect. Now let me make that plain for a minute. Even though God had them in a position of punishment, he was still there. He was still there. It makes that scripture well known. I will, I've never seen the, 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 the seed of God begging bread. He said, I would never leave you and I would never forsake you. Even though the times might seem a little bleak, even though something seems seemingly out of reach, I am still with you. Nevertheless, even in the midst of rebellion, even in the middle of hardened hearts, God still promised to restore them. Now, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I can read that in Scripture and know that because I can stand here as an absolute testament that I have not always gotten it right. I've probably gotten it wrong more times than I've gotten it right. But aren't you thankful for the mercy of God? Aren't you thankful for the peace and the patience of God? Even in the midst of captivity, Isaiah prophesied that God would do a new thing and that he would make Israel a light unto the nations. But this would not necessarily occur in the way that they thought it would. This would not necessarily come to pass the way that they thought it should. This restoration would not come through a heavy hand and it would not come through a fierce army. This restoration would be through sacrifice and Rejection. Hear me now. They thought it should be one way. Overtaking a government. Taking them out. And we're going to rule and reign in their place. But their restoration was not going to come through a heavy hand. But it was going to come through a servant. He spoke of a new servant. A savior who would save by what he said by bearing their iniquities. He said he would divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong 
because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now that, in our human intellect, seems way out of sorts. How can you overcome by dying? If you're not here, how can you rule and how can you reign? He spoke of a Messiah who would suffer and whose suffering would lead to the restoration of many. And Israel would indeed be a light to the Gentile nations, even though, hear me, temporarily they found themselves in bondage. Israel one day would be what God called them to be, a father of many nations. God called Israel to be a blessing and a light to the nations. Instead, Israel had been rebellious and experienced the, the rebellion and, and the barrenness of captivity as a result. Yet, in the middle of their imprisonment, he still prophesied the impossible. He, it, right in the middle of their barrenness, when they can't see anything coming out of this that would be good, God is still speaking through a man that says, I'm going to give you children, I'm going to give you health, and I am going to restore you. Isaiah urged the barren woman to rejoice again. He could foresee the grace of God that would flow from all four corners of the earth. He was admonishing them, prepare. He was admonishing them to live in expectancy. He was urging them to plan for the miraculous provision. Isaiah was admonishing the people to get ready for something that was going to go beyond their natural ability to comprehend. Isaiah was preparing them to prepare themselves for the fulfillment of the miraculous promise of God. Abraham and Sarah's descendants through the coming Messiah would transcend the natural and walk in the realm of the supernatural. The fulfillment of Genesis 28 and 14 that we read earlier would be more than that of natural descendants. It would be a spiritual lineage Though their surroundings didn't lend themselves to that, even though their surroundings lent themselves to despair and dark days, though their quote-unquote reality of the situation they found themselves in didn't seem promising, Isaiah and Isaiah 54 and 1 simply stood and proclaimed, Sing, O barren, that thou didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, Thou that didst not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge thy place of thy tent and let, the stre and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left hand and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither by that be thou confounded, for thou shalt be put to, shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt not forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowed and any more. 
for thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Hear me today. Isaiah was saying, make room. Isaiah was saying, enlarge your tent and enlarge your space. Isaiah was saying, expand your capacity and get ready for what God is about to do. Hear me today. We need to expand. We need to lengthen our cords. We need to make room and expand and get ready for what God is about to do. Come on, clap your hands to the Lord and receive that. We receive it, Lord. So the people of God needed to make room. They needed to make room for the promise to be fulfilled. The small tent must give way to the enlarged tent. The house would need to expand because the family of God was getting ready to grow. Can I tell you today, I've already said it, but I'll say it again. That's us. God has given that same promise to the church. Jesus promised to initiate a new kingdom that even the disciples had trouble wrapping their minds around at first. Acts 1 and 6, they said, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? The disciples still looked for a human government made by human means. But the Lord, in Acts 1 and 7, he redirected their thinking. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father had put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This would not be a fleshly kingdom. This would be a spiritual kingdom. And on the day of Pentecost, the disciples come into contact firsthand with what God had promised them. When God began to pour out his spirit upon them in Acts 2 and 5, the Bible says, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Peter stood right in the midst of that congregation of people from every nation and every tongue and every background, and he preached the infallible, immutable word of God. Peter and the other 11 stood in the midst of promise and fulfilled promise. God fulfilled his prophecy through Isaiah in that moment in Isaiah 28 and 11 when he said, for with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. Peter preached and he quoted the prophet Joel from Joel 2 and 28 and he said, and it will come to pass that I will pour out my spirit, hear me now, on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And so the promise, the promise of the church was for every kindred, every tongue, and every nation. 
Yet, still, the disciples had trouble wrapping their minds around the totality of the promise. It wasn't until Peter visited the house of Cornelius in Acts 10 that the vision became clearer and clearer to him. These were not Jews. These were Gentiles, and they were a household full of Gentiles. But the Bible says in Acts 10 and 46, they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God just like they did. Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus just as it was on the day of Pentecost. And so now we can see the full extent of what God has promised his people. Not only Jews from every nation would be the recipient of what God had promised, but every person of Gentile birth could be the recipient of the promises of God. Hear me, all nations, no matter what geographical barrier exists, all language, no matter the dialect, and all flesh, no matter the shade of the skin. Jesus would call them from all nations into the family of God, the kingdom of God. And he used Peter to proclaim it. He also used the apostle Paul to proclaim it to the Gentile nations and to be a voice. In Acts 9 and 15, it was said of Paul, he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my names, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul served as the missionary to the Gentile nations. And he preached the promise of the Spirit throughout the known world. Paul also wrote the bulk of the New Testament, writing letters otherwise known as epistles to churches throughout the Gentile world. In Paul's day, similar to Isaiah's day, there was peril. There was peril in culture. And so the promise, here we are again, finds itself in peril. Much of Paul's writings in the, Old, in the New Testament use Old Testament scripture. Paul believed that the stories of the Old Testament were written to inform and tell the story of God's people in the last days. Paul championed the faith of Abraham throughout and boldly proclaimed the promises of God. Paul proclaimed that the promise, although it may find itself surrounded by turmoil, the promise is not in turmoil. Though the promise may be seated right smack dab in the middle of some bad stuff, the promise is not in turmoil. Though the promise might find itself in the midst of an idolatrous, sinful nation, the promise is still alive, it's still well, and it is still available. If anyone ever doubted or wondered where Paul stood when it came to faith in that promise, we can read words like this in Romans 4 and 16. He said, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him who he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they 
were. He goes on to say in verse 20, he staggered not, talking about Abraham, at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it is. it was written not for his sake alone that it was imputed unto him but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification and so the church desperately in need of a message of hope Paul stood he he stood and he reminded the church over and over over and over again that they were the fulfillment of God's promises and although they might find themselves right in the middle right in the middle of unknown times right in the middle of dark days they are the church of promise and the promise is not in peril He said the church is the fulfillment of God's promise to the nations through Israel. Paul reminded the church that conformity was not the answer to the cultural pressures that surrounded them. Conformity was not the answer to their, to their overwhelmingly unanswered questions. And over and over again, Paul admonishes the church to be counterculture and to be separated from the world in their appearance and in the way that they conduct themselves both with the world and, hear me, each other. Because, I'm going to bring it down here just a minute. As unfortunate as this may sound, outside cultural pressure was not the only adversity the church faced. Factions and frustrations existed in the church as well. The church had heated debates about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Peter also struggled with interacting with them, as did others. But when some believers in the early church see, struggled to see God's vision, God raised up Paul to be a fierce defendant of the Gentiles. In his most notable writing, he wrote to the Galatian church, because Pharisaical Christians had advocated that the Gentiles would have to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. Paul challenged that thought process and relentlessly fought for grace. In Galatians 4, Paul passionately argued that human effort to keep the law would, would woefully fall short, but that the work of grace through the Holy Spirit would lead to freedom and not bondage in the church. Then, in Galatians 4 and 27, I've already read it, Paul, Paul quotes Isaiah 54 and 1. Lengthen your tents. Lengthen your cords. Get ready, because there's going to be an influx of people and we need to be prepared to bring them in. The New Testament church was encouraged to rejoice in the reality that she would no longer be barren and held captive by the failings of human effort to keep the law. By the work of Jesus Christ and by his spirit, the people of God would increase beyond measure. And now the New Testament people of God, both Jews and Gentiles alike from every nation, are now the children 
of promise. Abraham's offspring would no longer just be physical descendants that would keep the law. That would that it would soon expand to include all servants of the servant, those that are marked by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, when Paul went to the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, he advocated for the inclusion of the Gentiles to the leaders of the church. He had significant influence over those deliberations. And by this time, Peter, as well, was also a proponent and convinced that Gentiles must be included. The early church and its seminal leader, James, the half-brother of Jesus, concluded in Acts 15. He said, Simeon had declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to, the, and to this agree the words of the prophet as it is written. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. And so that, that is the vision. That is the vision culminated into one point. That is the vision that John saw. That, my friends, is the vision that Paul fought for. It's the vision that Isaiah prophesied. John's vision was the realization of what Peter preached, as have so many others. John's vision is what Jesus died for. And John's vision is what we must be striving toward. It is heaven. It is prophesied and it will come to pass. In the first three chapters of Revelation, John wrote letters to seven real churches, real church communities throughout the Roman province of Asia and what we know today is western Turkey. While exiled on the island of Patmos, John wrote as a companion in tribulation to many who were experiencing a time of crisis and persecution. Although they were in persecution, John wrote, warning them who were in more danger of compromising their faith than were willing to die for it. First century Christians in the Roman Empire experienced severe persecution to conform to sinful societal norms. John encouraged them to transcend daily Roman oppression and the propaganda by looking forward to the final fulfillment of God's promise for all nations. Throughout the letter was a variation of the phrase, every nation and every tribe and every language and every people. Now, Revelation is written predominantly in symbolism. And I don't want to cross any swords here today, so please hear me. John saw things perhaps he had never, ever seen before in his life to that point and perhaps ever saw again. He saw things perhaps that he would not be able to describe even some ways that we would be able to describe. Not all things were explained to him. And even some things that he heard, he was told not to record for ever making them a mystery to us. But not here. Not here. 
in Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 17, he sees his vision. And rhetorically he is asked, what is this? He politely responds, sir, thou knowest. And here, not shrouded in mystery, not said in some language that he didn't understand, but right here he is given an explanation for what he sees. Now I am not at all suggesting that the book of Revelation is written to intentionally keep people in the dark. No, if that's what you get out of this, you heard it wrong. After all, the entirety of the book and its central theme is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book itself identifies him as God incarnate, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the ending, the almighty God. Yet much of it still remains a mystery. But here, John sees a vision of heaven. And John is given an absolute, hard-cased explanation of what he sees. Every people, every nation, every tongue, every nationality, every ethnicity, every, every ethnicity, male, both male and female, will be before the throne along with the angels praising and giving glory to God for eternity so much of what we are seeing today is in direct contrast to this vision it is in direct opposition to this vision because much of the world today and our society is presented with arguments that are forcing people to take a side of one agenda or another and to be totally transparent and completely honest with you today without any guile or, 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 or ill will in my heart and, and, and no agenda of my own. But that type of distraction is attempting its way and creeping its way right inside the church. It's an agenda that is divisive and it is a, an agenda that is destructive because our world is divided racially, politically, and ideologically. And I am not using this platform to push any agenda of my own and I'm not using this as an, as an occasion to, to, to somehow capitalize on any current events that have happened in our nation as of today. It is simply where we are because it's where we have been. And so in the book of Revelation, the beast is identified and I'm hurrying. And his agenda was identified and it is to divide and cast asunder and apart that which was intended to be together for the glory of God. Now I am not suggesting unity at any cost but what I am suggesting here today is that the church look like what God intended it to be. If the church is going to reflect heaven on earth it will be by directly 
actually doing what Paul said in 2 Corinthians by casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, having all readiness to revenge all disobedience. He said, do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trust in himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. And so this will only come to fruition when the church lives with heaven in mind and refuses those outside influences of racial and prejudicial and political and national and all these other divisive practices in this world to distract them off of the heavenly vision that we are a united people from every nation and every kindred and every tongue because all humanity has been created in the image of God and the church is called to represent the divine vision of that in the earth. I'm finishing if you'll stand with me this morning. And so no matter, no matter what we may envision when we think about heaven, the vision of heaven cannot be any clearer than that of Revelation 7. That is what we should be working toward to make the church resemble that more and more here on earth than it ever has. I don't want to just see it then. I want to be able to see it now. And so can I tell you this morning, I will include you in this. I'll just say this of me. Whatever I need to do to make that happen, I'm gonna do it. If it's weight that I need to lay aside, I'm gonna lay it aside. If it's pride that I need to swallow, I'm gonna swallow it down. If it's some prejudices that I need to overcome, then I'm going to overcome them. I'm going to step over them because heaven is going to look like what God intended it to look like when it comes to pass. But I wanna be a contributor of that now. I wanna reach out now. I wanna give myself now. I want to go beyond myself now and do what God has intended me to do in the kingdom. And if you agree with that, if you believe that, if you would clap your hands to the Lord or lift your hands or lift your voice, whatever you want to do right now and give praise and glory and honor to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, we want to be what you call us to be, God. We want to resemble, Lord Jesus, what you intended the church to look like. We want to do it for your glory, God. We want to do it for your glory and your glory alone. We give you praise and we give you glory and we give you honor in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. One more time, would you clap your hands to the Lord? This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.